So here we are, uh, session number one as part of the Sonic Street Technologies takeover at the Amplify um, takeover of the Tin Sheds Gallery at the University of Sydney. Um, and uh, in conversation with myself, Moses Eaton uh, is Brent Cloth, who we have first, first got to know essentially as, as being on this side of the as this side of the microphone or this side of the recording desk, uh, interviewing, uh, working in radio, uh, documenting culture, making culture through radio, and now also researcher of uh, reggae music in the, in, in uh, Vanuatu, and um, also published research on, on reggae history in Australia, etc. But what what gets a little bit left out is that you actually are a, a culture maker as well in in the in the the reggae scene, or how would you describe your? I'm referring to your um, role as a selector, which stretches back to the 80s. Would you yeah. tell us maybe how you sort of started out working with music? Uh, you know, I, I suppose I just uh, yeah, I do think of myself as a selector in all sorts of fields. You know, it's like uh, gathering things and combining things and juxtaposing things. Um, I started off playing records as a teenager. You know just had a high school radio station and played records because I like records and wrote reviews and did all that stuff and we had the school radio station and I started running it and you know being involved in that and then eventually got a job in radio and so did programs around music on radio in New Zealand and then went to England and messed about a little bit with pirate radio came in touch with pirate radio people there because I love reggae and pirate radio was just beginning to happen for particularly for the black community in London at that stage and reggae was the main music so it was exciting and then I came back to New Zealand and ended up in Australia after being in New Zealand working in radio again for a little while came back here and got involved in radio and yeah university stuff as well and then ended up at ABC after that. So, but, but your, your initial um, performance as a DJ essentially was on air, was mostly radio, more than, than also no, performing it was, in it was, it was also, I always had this dream. I realized I picked up an old 45 the other day and it had uh, Monty's Disco and then my address on it. And I realized when I was about 14, I wanted to have a disco called Monty's Disco. I have no idea why I wanted to call it Monty's. I think Monty Python or something like that. <laughs> and I was collecting records. F f well, oh, actually, the first story about records was my, especially 45s, my cousin had a beautiful 60s recording of Petula Clark, I think, and she and her cousin uh, sat me down and played me records one afternoon, and I was just devastated by how wonderful 45s were, and from that point started getting little records, and people would give me records, and I started buying them from before I was a teenager, really. So I just kept on getting them, and I discovered mail order when I was about 12 or something and started mail ordering records from all over the place. So, and I found out that I really like reggae, so that all kind of happened at about the same age, probably, just as you're entering that point where all your tastes are formed, when you're about 11 to 13, I think, or maybe a bit earlier, maybe 9 to about 12 or something. And, and your love for reggae, did that uh, just come through recordings or did you also experience any reggae in a more live setting in New Zealand? I did, yes. I saw my first reggae band actually was a Maori band from Porirua in Wellington 
called Chaos, who are still around, I think still playing. They reformed because people were interested. They played at a hippie festival near my hometown. And I was really pleased to see that reggae was catching on because I'd listened to a lot of Jamaican reggae. And then I think about the same year I saw Bob Marley and the Whalers in Auckland. Which so this was is early start. 80s? This was 79. Oh, late 70s, yeah. Yeah. So, and that was exciting. And just because I was persistent, I managed to get an interview with Bob Marley. So did that for my school newspaper, which I edited. And, uh, you know, actually spent half an hour with Bob just having a nice chat, which as a 17-year-old was, was pretty enjoyable. And there was only two other interviews done in the country. He didn't do interviews particularly. He did one TV one, which is still used, uh, which is a great interview that Dylan Tate, the journalist, did. And another one by the Hare Krishna magazine in New Zealand, who came in after me into the hotel room that I was in <laughs> and got an got a interview for their magazine. So it's, um, that looks, that's a very auspicious or formative experience then because it combined both radio and your, you know, as, as a selector, you're mainly, mainly known for your reggae selections, although obviously much broader as well. And yeah. How, how did you become like a serious DJ playing? Um, how did you establish yourself, I guess, uh, in terms of playing live? We sort of heard your radio trajectory. I, I think that didn't really happen until the late... Uh, well, I mean, I used to DJ. I DJ clubs when I was a teenager in New Zealand and bars and things. And uh, did, did some of that as soon as I got to Australia. Organised events with a friend. And we played live for those and we would have all sorts of mixed media and live events and so on so i was actually pretty active as soon as i got here just organizing so when was that events. that was uh 84 i came to live i came in 83 for a brief period um just for a holiday really and then came back in 84 to live and study and started doing all these gigs and those were really mixed we used to play a lot of jazz i'd DJ with a lot of jazz bands when I first came here, young jazz bands who were, there was a kind of mini jazz boom that was coming out of the post-punk scene. And so a lot of young players were not really going to the con. They were just playing in bands and getting good playing. You know, there was a kind of English influence. I think there was a lot of English street jazz stuff happening at that time. So we DJed for bands. And eventually I started sneaking in some of the reggae that I had, but it was always pretty mixed, you know, funk and soul and um, jazz. And then I ended up doing a reggae show on uh, 2SER called Splashdown, uh, which was from about 84, 85 onwards and did that for more than 20 years. So, yeah, that was when I really started um, buying a lot more and then trying to DJ out. And then in 89, we set up this thing called Massive Reggae using JJ Roberts Soulmaker sound system for the first one we did in Redfern and that was with a group of friends who were all reggae heads and we had a huge response it was really exciting so that was when it really started getting serious in terms of this is this is like uh, a kind of analog for the sound system scene that we all loved from other parts of the world and I'd seen in England in a big way and been to a lot of uh, sound system and blues dances in South London and uh, places like Notting Hill for Carnival and so on. So, you know, I was really pleased to see that happen in Australia. And there were enough Jamaicans and West Indian people here to really give it the sort of stamp of, like, this is legitimate. And I remember Jamaicans saying to me, the one we did here at the Tin Sheds, 
back in the day. When we started Massive Reggae at the Tin Sheds in 80, well, uh, it was probably about 1990, did, did the first one in 89 in Redfern, and then we came to the Tin Sheds and did about three or four, I think, about four. Jamaicans said to me, this is as close to uh, what it's like in Jamaica as you can get. We had Jamaican food, Jamaicans cooking food, Jamaicans on the mic, Jamaicans selecting, you know, Jamaican colleagues in Australia getting involved. So it was great, and it was great to see that. And I think they sort of suddenly realised, oh, there's a, there's a groundswell of interest in reggae and, you know, dancehall as it was becoming, and that there was enough of a, a white audience, and, um, you know, to come along and get into it. And, and broader Australian audience was starting to pick up on the fact that reggae was could be as exciting as a house night or a techno night, you know, because that was booming at that time. House parties were, house music was getting enormous in Sydney at that stage, rat parties and so on. And was that a particular crew or something that organised these events? Uh, yeah, did it with, uh, there was a group of four or five of us uh, and one was a friend I had brought in to help on Splashdown, the reggae show I was doing on 2SER, English guy called Mark Ottignon, who's still a very serious uh, reggae head. Another guy called Andrew Thomas, Prince Andrew, who uh, I subsequently did a lot more work with, and we created Nasty Tech in 93, which was the first sort of sound system, well, sound system crew, I guess, a, a dance hall crew in Australia, uh, along with Mikey Glamour, an English uh, youth who came out who had a lot of experience with sound system. So, yeah, there was a, there was a group of um, five of us who, who kicked off the massive reggae things and pulled our, you know, money and enthusiasm and... Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you mentioned um, JJ Roberts before. What sort of role did that... I mean, how did that happen that you were able to work with his sound system? Well, I had come to Australia in 83, and one of the reasons I came back in 84 was because I saw JJ Roberts and Soulmaker Sound System in action, and I realised, okay, there's a, a good reggae scene in Sydney that uh, operates around sound systems, and JJ Roberts is the real deal. He's got proper music, Jamaican music, He's Jamaican. It's good. It's working. So I sort of thought I can come back to Sydney confident in the knowledge that there's at least one person who, who's really doing a good job with reggae and sound system activity. So I approached him, you know, around that time we were doing it, 89, 88, 89. And um, he agreed to let us use his set for the first mass of reggae. And he helped us enormously and, you know, came on the evening and I can't remember if he selected or not. He probably didn't, actually. I think he just oversaw the sound and made sure we were, you know, running it optimally and, and having fun. And it was wonderful. He, I think he was astonished at how much of a crowd we managed to attract. And from that point on, you know, we carried on and got enormous crowds, biggest crowds I've ever seen for reggae gigs in at least sound system gigs in Australia until about now, I think as the sound thing has finally got back and, and, and really established itself in Australia. So, so when, when would the climax of that have been and what sort of stopped it, I guess? Uh, I'm not too sure exactly what stopped it. You know, there's usual disagreements and things amongst but people. But like in the late 90s or something? Or when, uh, when well, no, I mean, earlier than that. By 93, uh, that group of people had stopped putting on massive reggae. We, we did some supports for bands, we did support for Steel Pulse, uh, maybe somebody else. Oh, that's when you started Nasty Tech, I guess. No, we were still doing massive reggae oh. at one point, and then, uh, and then we did um, Nasty Tech. We set up Nasty Tech once Andrew and I met Mikey, 
and we had this real notion that we were going to um, make it more of a performance thing. Yeah. You know. And then you also still worked with JJ Roberts Sound System at times? Uh, at times, yes, uh, because JJ was still active uh, you know, on the scene doing stuff, so Soulmaker and Nasty Tech would sometimes appear at the um, same venue, always alongside. We never really clashed. We, you know, we did clash with other crews, uh, from time to time, and those were a lot of fun, but never with JJ because JJ is not really a clash sound and it's always a, a raster sort of cultural sound to play music to uplift people. So, And that's what I liked very much. That was, that was my end of things. But dancehall became increasingly, uh, I guess, similar to hip-hop, became more like kind of glorifying gangsterism and, you know, slackness, as we call it, mm-hmm. uh, girls' lyrics and so on. So it lost a bit of the spiritual element of Rasta reggae from the 70s and early 80s. Mm. And um, you never had a desire or, 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 or need, I guess, to build or have your own like, physical sound system, your own... We started to buy bits and pieces for Narcissec, but it was always um, something we wanted to make it musical. So we were always looking at... Um, first of all, we were getting sam- samplers and adding to the sound... We paid for, we were also buying dub plates. We got a number of dub plates done in Jamaica, so we're spending money on dub plates, specials for the set. Uh, we, I, I don't think we really ever had proper transport, so we, we, we probably needed to buy a van before we started buying or building boxes, you know. Um, and it was a fractious kind of crew at large, you know, it, was, it never quite gelled into a like, Everyone will carry boxes. Everyone will, you know, happily get involved. It was, you know, everyone was pretty single-minded and strong-minded, I suppose you'd say. We, you know, we worked well as a crew. We had a lot of fun together. But it, it, it never felt exactly like we were going to set it up as a physical sound. I think that was a, a commitment that no one was quite able to make. Um, JJ, of course, was a real sound with, you know, home-built boxes and, and gradually always, uh, you know, building the sound up and, and um, establishing you know, a really particular sound for his sound system. It, it was unique. So we admired that, but we always were too busy buying records, dub plates and other things, and just playing parties, getting but out. But it's, it's interesting, interesting what you say, because, you, I mean, it sounds to me like you were actually investing heavily, but in a different direction into the music as well as, like, how to perform the music because yeah. you, you got some extra gear, like uh, some yeah. dub effects or what, what was the extra gear as well? Yeah, it, w- it, was, it was effects units and um, definitely sampling. We you know, would always sample a lot of sound effects into it. We had good mics. We also recorded everything. We, we, we followed the Jamaican approach to sound system, I guess, because we um, really encouraged someone on the mic. So Mikey Glamour was really the MC he, and he talked his way through everything. And we would have a lot of, you know, haul and pull, so the crowd would shout and we'd lift up the track. So he was um, from the UK, but was he Jamaican background? He's Jamaican background, yeah. So Mikey really brought that total commitment to sound system life. He'd grown up around sounds, was like the biggest Saxon sound supporter in Australia, named his daughter Saxon. <laughs> he, he was very, very committed, and he's also a sound tape guy, and still is, is really the main person in Australia for the recordings of sound system events. And that's an alternative history to reggae that a lot of people outside of particularly the Jamaican community don't really understand. 
but he was collecting them from the UK and then here as well? or, or from Yes, from here, from here and the UK and Jamaica, everywhere, the US. Initially on cassettes, then I guess probably eventually CDs, and now streaming. So he's the master of uh, streaming sound across various platforms. I see he's also now on YouTube, which you pointed out to me. Yeah, some nasty tech um, yeah. footage on YouTube. Yeah. So Mikey is the archivist for sure. He, he kept... We did a lot of our sound recording onto video for better quality at the time, like recorded it onto videotape. Um, and yeah, you know, that was, that was something we were always aware of, that we wanted to document it. We wanted to trade our cassettes and sound with other sounds. So other sounds got to know about us quite well, and sound fans around the world knew of Nasty Tech. We entered that kind of economy of trading mm. tapes. So he, he was interested in archiving anything he liked, essentially, but then when he was part of the crew, he was archiving you guys, or yes. himself, I guess you could say. Yeah, well, for the scene, generally, yeah. Um, for all the things, to get the kudos from other people, to show that we could select like a sound anywhere else and sound pretty much like a sound anywhere else, and that we could compete on an international level. We could have some dub plates that were interesting. We could have an up-to-date selection of music. We could have a variety of music. So in the beginning, we were playing... You know, not only dancehall and one-drop-style reggae, we were playing hip-hop, R&B to some extent, uh, Bhangra. We had a selector who, who concentrated on Bhangra, Miguel D'Souza. So we were... And, and Jungle. Jungle was kicking off, and we started to play quite a bit of Jungle. So we were really, you know, mixing it up. Um, and I think that's what Sydney audiences quite like. They didn't, didn't mind having radical sort of differences in the music. It was mm. good. Well, there are questions that I need to ask him directly if he's, if he's up for it. Um, mm. But obviously him listening to all of these mixes from all over the world informed his own um, performance and his own idea of what a sound system event should be like. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we always took our lead in a lot of ways from Mikey because he had that history of it and ongoing connection to sound system life and, and all the recordings and so on. And that was Mikey's excitement. And Mikey's love was for the clash and still is. He's always followed the idea of sound systems clashing and reaching this kind of world stage. And it's become a, a real cross-cultural kind of phenomenon, the sound clash, and ended up with you know, German and Japanese crews actually winning world clashes against the best in Jamaica. So, and Jamaicans were always in for that too. You know, if someone else can uh, select and mix and present reggae in the way that Jamaicans understand and do it as well as a Jamaican, then they'll give them props. And, of course, David Rodigan, the UK radio guy, made a career out of going to Jamaica and... <laughs> You know, um, astonishing Jamaicans by his nutty dancing and complete knowledge of reggae and the ability to draw a, a, a wicked card to defeat uh, the opposition. Like he could pull out a, a dub plate that nobody could have. And he got because he was both radio and a sound system guy. So he had, I think he had Bomali dub plates, which was just remarkable. You know? Yeah, you, you were mentioning, um, mentioning before how um, you... Uh, like the music you played, you know, it was, it was quite mixing it up, but it was in a way cutting edge, I guess. I mean, he's starting to play Bhangra, Jungle, all these different sounds. Um, so, so what influenced you to play those sounds on the sound system? Because he didn't just stay strictly reggae, or, um, you know, certain, some people are more trying to like stick into a certain sound without this whole evolution going on. What sort I, I, th of I think we took our lead in a lot of ways from Jamaican sounds. Jamaican sounds were pretty eclectic. 
you know, there were rhythms that were being created in dance hall that were borrowing from uh, Bhangra, borrowing from Indian music at that time. Diwali was sort of one rhythm. And there was probably other ones. They were casting around for new approaches to making music. As it became more studio-based, producer-based, people were sampling like all sorts mid, of things. Like in the mid-90s? Yes, yeah. yes, by the mid-90s. And, and you started to have really creative, like always in Jamaica, creative production techniques. And... So I think, and sound systems were the same. Sound systems were mixing it up. They weren't just monolithic playing only reggae or dance, or they would play a soul set at the beginning. If you go to a Jamaican sound system, even now, you'll hear a range of music. You'll hear pop music. I've been in a sound system when police raided a dance and they were, <laughs> the, the selector from Gemini Sound, I think, in um, Kingston, as the cops came in and broke up the dance, he, um, all the sounds stopped. And then out of the silence um, came... Uh, wham, wake me up before you go-go. And everyone just sat, stood there staring at the cops playing this tune at them. And, you know, of course, the locals thought it was hilarious and um, it was perfect. And, you know, uh, uh, but a sound man should, should be able to play any style. And um, in Jamaica, uh, you know, uh, eclecticism's cool. And I think generally in sound system culture, you never find sounds that are just so... I mean, maybe these days because there's so many sound systems, but you, generally sound systems have to be able to cater to a lot of taste. And certainly J.J. Roberts discovered that in Australia. He had to cater to tastes that had no room for Caribbean music even, you know, let alone reggae. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's... It's covering a lot of... Oh, one, one, maybe one more thing I'll ask you about the, the connection with because your origin, origins are in New Zealand. Um, we're not going to go into what's happening in New Zealand, but I'm interested in, in your perspective on the connections between Australia and New Zealand oh, in, wow. in terms of sound system culture. If, if there is a way of... of well, I think, yeah, there's... Summarising that, I guess. Boy, I, yeah, it's hard for me because most of the New Zealand sound activity in Australia has been in Melbourne, I think. There's a few New Zealanders in Sydney, but I think by and large, the people who've come from New Zealand and set up sounds have mostly been in Melbourne. So, and I know the Melbourne scene a little bit, but not enough to really comment. I know Housewife's Choice, uh, I think, has uh, an Aotearoa connection. Fiona Byrne, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think, I think there's always been a connection in terms of reggae. I remember when I first came here, the community, especially in Bondi, and especially um, Maori community in Bondi, was very involved in bringing bands from uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Herbs was a band that came over um, in those days. Waitangi Day was always a thing here in Bondi, Bondi Pavilion, people like uh, Dr. Jim George. Um, he was involved in setting up a lot of events in Sydney, and there's still an ongoing connection with a, you know, a lot of the touring bands come here and play, sometimes these days, not in Bondi, but western suburbs, um, for probably a predominantly New Zealand audience. So LAB would come, Catch a Fire would come through, Be Another One's Foundation group from Auckland came through a few years ago. You know, there's an audience over here, and, uh, you know, we kind of forget that actually it's, it's um, one of the biggest migrant groups, really, New Zealanders. Um, but we're kind of, the white ones are sort of invisible and the brown ones are kind of good Aussies too. We're all bloody Aussies now, mate. <laughs> Except we're not, you know, because we all go back to... And what about the other way? Home. Australians going to New Zealand? You're aware yeah, of it. Hey, doesn't happen, man. Doesn't, doesn't happen, you know. Um, 
There's more English in New Zealand in terms of reggae stuff. I can't think of any Australians, guess, you know. I guess the, the other way, there are um, New Zealanders who spent years in Australia who then go back to New Zealand. True, yes. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, always, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people like me, I've been here a long time, but I return every year pretty much and still have a lot of connections there and now am doing a lot more around music, so DJing and working with sound systems and, and friends who I've kept in touch with who are wonderful, um, you know, record producers, DJs, uh, record label owners, and it's a, it's a good scene. It's a great scene for, new, for reggae New Zealand still, you know, and um, creative music generally. It's, it's got a strong, uh, you know, local flavour. There's a lot of government support too, always. New Zealand On Air has been a great supporter for uh, New Zealand acts. Well, thank you, Brent, for that uh, That's okay, insightful <laughs> conversation. Yeah, good fun. Yeah, and uh, big up Amplifier. Woo! Woo! And all the listeners all around the city.